Hola, ¿cómo estás? Bien, ¿y tú? Bien. It's the daily convo. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? Good. I've been away for a little bit. I'm working on an album, so I have to manage time on hobbies and interests that is going to get me zero dollars. Well, actually, that's not true. I released an album about a year and a half ago, and I made about eight dollars in about a year and a half, so hey, man. Getting that money. But I come back to you today from a, this all started when I was doing research on the history of the Middle East and teaching world history. Um, and I noticed something and it made me think and I went down the rabbit hole and then I came out of it realizing that this is my window of opportunity to run for president of the United States. This is what I'm standing on right here. I'm gonna go for it. I'm gonna campaign based on solely on this podcast. So for all of you five people listening, I'm gonna start a GoFundMe, and there's gonna be a link at the uh, description for this episode. So for you five people, I'm probably gonna need about a hundred million dollars, maybe even upwards of a billion. Um, so just please do the best you can, because I'm gonna need some money for the Green War. And also, ads and stuff on YouTube are getting a little pricey. So if you could, that would just be great. Thank you. This episode of Those Who Wonder is brought to you by H2O that I'm sipping on. I sprinkle a little bit of lime juice in there. I've already had two cups of coffee today, so try not to push it. Um, but as previously mentioned, I got this plan. And before I really tell you about the plan, we're going to need to have some context. When I get into a series um, for a class I'm teaching that I'm going to put in a podcast, context is key. I need to give two different scenarios, two different background pieces of information before I really pitch my idea. So not quite an elevator pitch because this is going to end up taking about 45 minutes. But the goal is by the end of this, you are going to want to vote for me for president and you're going to be willing to give me your money. And maybe we'll improve the world while we're at it, but that's a side thing. I'd really just want your money. Um, so it all starts with OPEC. So if you do not know, OPEC is the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, OPEC, and it consists of countries in the Middle East, in Africa, and South America. Um, and what they do, uh, their mission statement is to coordinate and unify the petroleum policies of its member countries and ensure the stabilization of oil markets in order to secure an efficient economic and regular supply of, oil, of petroleum to consumers, a steady income to producers, and a fair return on capital for those investing in the petroleum industry. So it's pretty much like an economic alliance of countries who part of their major exporting and therefore their income is petroleum or oil. Um, we get our oil from countries such as Canada, Saudi Arabia, Mexico, Venezuela, Russia, Colombia, Iraq, Kuwait, Nigeria, and Ecuador. So the United States, that's what we're importing, along with our own oil. Um, of those countries, Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, Iraq, Kuwait, and Ecuador are in OPEC. So again, we import oil some of those countries that we import our oil from is in OPEC. Okay. So as I said before, I was researching about the Middle East and it seemed like OPEC was an important thing, um, topic to talk about because oil and we've potentially fought some wars over it and it's kind of a big deal. Um, so I learned more about the 1973 oil crisis in the United States. What happened was OPEC decided to put an embargo on the United States and some other countries, including Canada, Japan, the Netherlands, and the United Kingdom, 
for the United States support of Israel in the Yom Kippur War. So 1973, Israel is fighting Syria and Egypt, and the United States, because Israel's our ally, was backing them up. So what OPEC decides to do, again, it's like a game of chess, is to just put an embargo on us. So they are no longer going to sell us their petroleum and therefore their oil. What are the implications of this? So this is my teacher sense, but I'm going to propose things to you and then I'd like to ask you questions and have you think about those questions and then I will dive into hopefully what those questions, the answers those questions will bring. Part of, I think my job as a teacher is to speak about the process and understanding things because if you are self-aware of your own process and understanding, you can use critical thinking, which is essentially um, reflecting on your process. So if you are asking the right questions, that should bring the proper answers and the proper answers should lead to true understanding, which I'm going to do another series on that, but that's a whole bunch of hoopla. But again, you're listening to a teacher. So I'm going to try to teach as I speak. It's kind of the point of the podcast. So OPEC puts an embargo on the United States for petroleum or oil. What impact does that have on oil for us? If you guessed that the price of oil is going to go up, that would be correct. Now, why? So the price of oil increases by 400%. This includes like gasoline, right? Why is that? Well, if we're importing oil from a few countries that are in OPEC and we're no longer getting them, the supply has decreased and the demand is going to increase. So if you are Canada or Russia, it would be Soviet Union at the time, which I don't even really, honestly, I don't know if we were, I would be surprised if we were getting our oil from the Soviet Union at that time. But um, if they're saying, okay, well, and this is not an actual accurate number, but if it's $10 per barrel for oil, which would be stupid cheap, and you're desperate because half of your oil is now gone, your access, if I'm Canada, I'm going to say, okay, well, I was selling it to you for $10, but how about 20 now? And because the United States is desperate enough, they're going to buy for 20. Lack of competition. So then, if Canada is even bolder, they're going to say, okay, well, they're willing to get it for 20. Why not go $40 per barrel? And the United States was desperate enough where the price of oil increased by 400%. All right, and it's not really desperate enough. That's just what it was. So, in 1973, Nixon is going to... Uh, and the government's going to try to put some regulation so we can ration oil. So they're going to try to like have gasoline retailers shut down on Saturday nights and on Sundays. They have these like campaign propaganda, whatever you want to call it, where like don't be foolish. So they're like trying to convince people if you don't need to drive, please don't drive. So all these people that are trying to do these road trips to like find themselves out west, tough luck. Should have been born a decade later. Or even just like five years later, so you can do that road trip. But now, don't be foolish because we need to ration our oil and therefore gasoline, petroleum. So, I ask you, how much does it cost for you to fill up your tank of gas? And how often do you do it? So, for me, if I'm going on empty, which I sometimes do, unfortunately, it is what it is, it'll cost me about like 40 bucks to fill up a tank. And I have to fill up my tank probably every three quarters of a week because I drive 45 minutes to work and 45 minutes from. So $160 now every single time that I'm filling up my tank of gas. That's quite expensive. Why? Well, I'm not getting paid more. Like the, the, it's the cost of living is increasing, right? I'm not getting paid more at work, but how much I have to fill up the tank for how much it costs to fill up the tank is going to quadruple, which is crazy. So rather than spending $80 in a week on gas, I'm spending $320. That's a lot. That's potentially so much where I'm not even going to be able to afford, like I better be getting paid well enough at work to be able to afford that. Or else I'm gonna have to try to get a job closer to home. But then you gotta think about, so, Again, I ask you as a teacher, 
if the price of oil or gasoline is going to go up by 400%, what are the implications on your life? One, as I just said, was to fill up the tank is going to be quadruple the price. So ask yourself, how often do you fill up the tank? How much does it cost to fill up your tank? How much are you currently spending a month approximately on gas? And then what would that new number be if OPEC were to put an embargo on you and you were alive in the 1970s? It'd be quite a lot. Now, other implications. Let's ask this. What, based on what we consume, what do we consume that, that is dependent on gasoline or diesel or just petroleum or oil in general? Think about your day-to-day life, how much of it is at least influenced or dependent on petroleum. Tomorrow I'm going to be going grocery shopping. When I walk around the grocery store, how much of that food was delivered via oil? I might have to say everything because to the best of my knowledge, they're not growing stuff in the back of Giant, which is my grocery store. I mean, some of it might be like locally made, but everything there was delivered. Bananas aren't growing in Pennsylvania. They're growing in Central America. And how are they getting their way to the United States? Boat, plane, train, truck, whatever. They're getting there via oil or petroleum. So now let's say your business is selling bananas and the price of oil is going up. What do you need to do for your price of your product in order to maintain a profit? That needs to go up. So now Giant, and again, I understand Central America is not putting the embargo in for oil, for OPEC, but like, let's say any product that was made in the United States or delivered in the United States, those businesses that are distributing things, they have to charge more because oil is more expensive. So now food at Giant is going to be more expensive. So now I'm paying more for gasoline and I'm paying more for products that are delivered via oil. That's basically everything. To the best of my knowledge, we don't have humans like walking or riding horses to deliver things. Everything runs on oil. So then I take a step back and I'm looking at all this like, hold up, how much of my day-to-day life is dependent on oil? Driving down the highway, everything, every vehicle, unless it's like a Tesla or now more cars are coming, becoming electric, basically everything. So the way my mind works, I thought to myself, well, then if that's true, then oil is heroin to the United States. We can't function without it, or we could. That's why it's not like blood or oxygen. We could function without it. But if we were to go cold turkey, imagine tomorrow if we're like, I don't know why this would happen, but if we all agree, we're never going to use oil. Our system, civilization, our society would go through withdrawal. We'd start to get the shakes, maybe puke a little bit, maybe poop ourselves a little bit. And how long... How long until we just got to get that fixed and feel better again? If we were tomorrow to just not use oil, we would be in big trouble. Think about like the food that I eat is there because of oil. So now if I lose access to it, what does that mean for my life? So we need to go even deeper about the implications. Oil is our heroin. If we were to just stop using oil, like I'm going to have to start, I don't know, like using a garden. Like, how am I going to get my food? Everything's going to have to be locally made. So like, maybe that's a good thing. Support local business, like local farm, whatever. When you go to a hippie dippy restaurant, which is so, (laughs) I feel like an older person, like judging what they say about like millennials who are going to these restaurants where it's like local farm food, but it would be true. And this wouldn't even be like if we were to just stop using oil, if 
let's say OPEC were to put an embargo on us where we would have to deal with the price of gasoline or whatever going up potentially quadrupling we would have to change our lifestyle so just to recap 1973 OPEC puts an embargo on the United States and other countries because of the United States support for Israel in the Yom Kippur War the effects of that are the price of oil or gasoline or whatever petroleum quadruples by 400% or no <laughs> increases by 400% so then the implications are okay what's that so cost of living is going to go up it might not go up 400% but your cost of living is going to go up and we all collectively are gonna have to change our lifestyle until the embargo ends or we do something else so now when I was teaching this I give this scenario which I would like for you to make a decision on let's say it's May 2020 the beginning of the travel season and I mean we could go two ways about this we could say Iran which is in OPEC and kind of in the current events for us or even all of OPEC um, decides to put another embargo on us we could say it's either because of what we're doing to Iran or the Israeli-Palestinian conflict whatever for some reason OPEC has put an embargo on us now you are a part of the council in the United States to the president and we need to make a decision what are our options I would say there are two let's go to realistic but there's also a third one option one we say screw you OPEC we're gonna deal with it and we are going to work to become independent of you as in you putting an embargo on us does not have an impact on our day-to-day -day lives so we are going to experience an increased cost of living the it, it could the prices for petroleum could increase 400% and the implications blah 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 while trying to go green or just using our own oil but let's just try not to do that so option a is we're going to say screw you OPEC go ahead and put that embargo on us we are going to adjust and deal with it option B is we're gonna say sorry OPEC you're right and we're going to give in for whatever they want and because we need that cheap oil that good goose stuff right that heroin because we're just realistically we don't want to go through withdrawal and we like the way it feels to be living on heroin <laughs> whoops to be living on oil <clears throat> and we don't want to change or option C would be we say screw you OPEC uh, we're gonna get that oil and we're gonna go to war with whoever we want to get it like we've never done that before let's say option A and B either we give in to their demands and continue to use cheap oil or option A is we work to become less dependent on OPEC I'm going to give you a little bit of time and think about what do you think is the right choice so OPEC's going to put an embargo on us it's May 2020 beginning of the travel season they're declaring an embargo on us do we give in or not give in take some time to think about it So I guess if we are going to decide, really, I mean, to decide, I think I felt like probably like 10 seconds I just gave you. I mean, you're definitely going to need a lot more time to think about both sides. And that's this is where the teaching part comes in. We should consider what are the implications, the true implications on both ends. Option B, if we just give in, I mean, what, if like if the scenario is with Iran... I'm not sure specifically what Iran would be requesting, but we're going to give in to countries in the Middle East. We're going to to get cheap access to oil. So life will pretty much continue the way it is. Maybe a little bit of things will change, but like you as an average American citizen, no offense, your life is probably going to stay the same. Okay. Option A, implications. Cost of living goes up. 
for me, I may not be able to sustain my current standards of living. As in, I'm unsure if I could possibly drive an hour and a half every single day and I might have to leave that job and hopefully get a teaching job closer to me. Or I'm gonna have to move, okay? So that's option, or that's one thing that'll happen. Also, consider this. Let's say that giant, that grocery store I was talking about. Let's say because things cost more, people are going to be much more conservative in buying things at your store. So you might be losing revenue. And what do you need to do to cut costs to deal with that? A lot of times businesses, to cut costs, will they will fire people and let some people go. So now what might happen, I'm not saying this will happen, but if we were to say, screw you, OPEC, we're going to go into withdrawal. And this is what withdrawal looks like. The cost of living goes up. Businesses need to start to save revenue. They're going to start to let some people go. Perhaps if they're letting people go, we now have people who are being fired and losing their jobs while the cost of living is going up all because we're like we don't want to give in we're too good for that and like maybe it's a sense of pride this is withdrawal like do you think that the united states and the people in the united states are going to be able to handle that are they going to be able to be like okay i know i just got fired i know food costs way more and i see that all I need to do is just go out and we collectively as a nation need to just go out and like reach for that thing that's going to make us feel good again and like feel okay, heroin, oil. But in the long term, potentially going green is going to be better because we're not going to be dependent. Do you think Americans are going to have the foresight to be able to do that collectively? Because... Right when we start to go into withdrawal, we're going to be in withdrawal until we can function as a nation not on oil, or at least ideally, like that's a situation where we're functioning on something else, a cleaner source of energy. We're going to go green. So we can use oil from Canada, we can use our own oil, but the goal is we're going to do that and work towards getting into a greener system. We're going to blend up the spinach and detox ourselves. And then we're going to just try to live life without oil. That's a long ways away in the future. Why? Well, I recall being in high school. It was like 2008 or 2009. And I was saying to my dad um, and my brother, I was like, why can't we have a Ford F-150 that's totally electric? And my dad said, well, the market's not ready for that yet. And that frustrated me at the time. I found that to be annoying. And like, I understand what he's saying and I understood what he's saying. I think I understand it better now, but the reason why we there isn't an electric Ford F-150 is one, there isn't enough demand yet from people in society. Two, it's going to cost way too much to make a Ford F-150. So because like the technology isn't quite there to like harness electricity well enough to have a Ford F-150 run proper that's going to meet the standards of the consumer, that's going to cost way too much because the technology isn't cheap yet. It would be like when the laptop first came out, it costs way more. But like now, or even like a phone, even though the phones are fairly, like they're stupid expensive now. But the more the technology is out there, the cheaper it gets. The market's not ready there. So to make an electric Ford F-150 is going to cost so much to make, then you have to sell it for so much plus more. And then the consumer either can't afford it or they're just like, no, I'm just going to buy a cheaper, like just diesel or gas Ford F-150. Like I don't need that. Right? So the market's not ready for it. So we need to work on going green and electric all the while going through withdrawal and hopefully have the foresight to be able to like get through withdrawal to going green and I guess like working the market in there. Hmm. Okay. Keep that in the back of your mind. Scenario number two. So it's going to be scenario two plus scenario one is going to convince you that I should be president just to just a little mental checklist. Okay. Scenario number two, 
On December 17th, 1903, the Wright brothers flew the plane, a plane for the first time. Now, I want you to envision a ruler and think of the ruler is a visual representation of the timeline of Homo sapiens existing on this planet and humanity. So it's about like 200,000 years. Okay. 200,000 years of humans existing and doing whatever is like hunter gatherers, nomadic people turns into civilizations like Egypt and blah, 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 1903. Okay. For that entire history, humans never flew. Now, we fly in 1903, and then in 1969, humans land on the moon. Consider what I just said. 200,000 years, essentially, we never fly. We fly for the first time, and then 66 years later, we get on the moon. When you think about that, that's crazy to never fly and then you fly for the first time so like you have a vehicle like leave the ground and just float in the air for a bit and then land 66 years later so like someone's lifetime we've launched into space and have properly landed on the moon and then came back supposedly we're gonna assume that we landed on the moon we're also gonna assume that the earth isn't flat but that's crazy what does that say that means that when humans can act collectively towards a common goal, usually in a competitive sense, we are incredible or we are capable of incredible technological advancement and advancement in general. Humans acting collectively towards a common goal can lead to incredible advancement. Why did we fly in 1903 then get to the moon in 1966? Was there like a market to get to the moon? No. The Soviets flew a satellite and we were like, heck no, we're in the space race, the Cold War. We're like, there's no way that those gosh dang commies are going to get to the moon before us. We're doing it. And everyone seemed, and not literally everybody, but the United States seemed to be like collectively like, yeah, we're going to do this just because we don't want to lose. Like JFK in his inaugural speech, like we're going to get to the moon. And everyone's like, yeah. And we just... For some reason, like the market wasn't there to get to the moon, we just did it anyway, and we got to the moon. Now, also in between 1903 and 1966, you have two world wars. Competition leads to innovation. And in this sense, competition was we need to try to kill more of them than they kill us. So like flight improved. So it's not like just from 1903 to 1969, the only thing was the space race. Like there were two world wars, which improved flight. But that even still is people collectively coming together to do something. If you just wait for the market, it's going to take a long, long, long. If we were to just like wait for the market to be ready for us to get to the moon, I don't know if that would ever happen because why would there be a market to get to the moon? Because no offense to the moon. But from my understanding, it's just, it seems like a cool place to go and like collect the dust there and then come back. Now, what happens when we got, get to the moon is there's a bunch of technology that bleeds into society that we would not have had without getting to the moon. So like there is a benefit. So all the nerds who are talking about like, it's still important to do things in space. Like I get that. So common technology that we have is due to space exploration cool beans. My point is that it seems like in human history, specifically with the example of flying and then getting to the moon, when humans act collectively, we are capable of achieving exponential growth in regards to at least technology. Now, that doesn't necessarily help us with the what I'm going to say is the green war or that doesn't help us with going into withdrawal because life will suck in withdrawal I acknowledge that but I then I was reading this book called tribes it's um tribes on Homecoming and Belonging by Sebastian Younger, I think his name is, Younger, something like that. Sorry, I should definitely like look this up before I start a podcast, but Tribes on Homecoming and Belonging. And within that book, 
uh, he mentions the Battle of London. And in the Battle of London, you have, this is in World War II, you have the Nazis and the Luftwaffe. I always do that. The Luftwaffe, uh, it's the Nazi Air Force, is starting to, they've dominated France and they're starting to fly across the English Channel and bomb London. Like, they're going after factories and such, but they're also just bombing the people. In efforts that, okay, this is just going to demoralize the British and they're just going to chill out and not want to fight us and we'll just get what we want. So if you're living in London, when there was an air raid and it happened for like a month straight, usually at night, people would go into different shelters, like in the tube, which is their subway system. And so in this book, um, Younger is mentioning... We'll call him Sebastian because I feel like I'm butchering his name. Is mentioning that like in a any certain shelter, like there's ten thousand people, so that's a lot of people, right? And what the government was freaking out, like this is going to be chaos. People are going to take advantage of lack of order, and like we're not going to be able to manage all these people. But what ended up happening was in like the shelter of ten thousand people. The police were rarely ever needed. The people were able to police themselves. Why is this? Well, when the big picture problem that you're experiencing is that like you and the city and all the people that you're with are getting bombed, minute issues don't necessarily matter. So like, again, for instance, I walk into the tube with an Eagles jersey, even though I was going to say, even though that's English and this is American football, but whatever. I walk into the tube with an English jersey and I see a Cowboys fan. Am I really going to be like, hey, screw you and like start to like start stuff with a Cowboys fan, even though I would never do that anyway? No, I would not. Why? Because if I did that, everyone around me would be like, are you serious? Like that is the problem that you're focusing on right now? Like we don't have time for that. We have a bigger problem. We are all getting bombed. And think about what I'm saying. If you listen to the big three podcast series that I had, the one on Sonder, we, not they, it's not they're getting bombed. We are all getting bombed. So we have now become a collective unit who is suffering together. And there is evidence that shows that um, when society, and this is not every society, and this isn't like 100% of the time, but when societies experience suffering, collective suffering, like suicide rates drop. There is less psychiatric activity. Um, that like this has been noted in London, has been noted in Spain, Algeria, Lebanon, and Northern Ireland. So like when a group of people are experiencing something together, that's making them everyone has to step up and be a part of a common cause of like resistance of some sort. People feel they have a purpose. So everyone that's in that tube shelter together. The 10,000 of them are all getting bombed and they are all now thinking of we. And we are resisting the Nazis. And when you wake up the next day, you are helping people out of the rubble. You're cleaning up the streets. You wake up every single day and you have a purpose. Now, I'm not saying that like it's a good thing that they were getting bombed because people die. I'm not saying that like violence and war is a good thing because of the, the trauma that comes with that long-term cannot be good but even like so this guy H.A. Lyons he's from Northern Ireland um, he was noticing when Northern Ireland and Ireland was experiencing a civil war he noted that the men's depression rates so depression rate for men declined significantly in areas that were experiencing like violent fighting for the civil war because those men felt that they were a part of something and like had a purpose so they noted less depression. Now, also, let like let's be objective here. How how often in a civil war situation are you like going around asking people their depression rates? But they're noticing like suicide rate tends to drop when war is happening. That ha- the same thing I believe was noted for 9/11. Like the suicide rates went down. Now, the trauma of 9/11 not good. But people felt like they were a part of something. The patriotism increased. And actually, H.A. Lyons noticed and noted that in the most violent districts, so the depression rate went down for men. In peaceful areas, the depression rate actually increased. 
because they felt that they were not helping. They felt like they're being sheltered from this and like they weren't a part of the struggle and like the fight for the we. They're not helping the we. And that actually had a negative mental impact. And he has a quote in this that I very much like. It's, when people are actively engaged in a cause, their lives have more purpose with a resulting improvement in mental health. I'm going to read that again. When people are actively engaged in a cause, their lives have more purpose with a resulting improvement in mental health. When the people of London were being bombed, it's not as if they all like crumbled and melted under the pressure. They actually became more resilient and more defiant. The same thing was noted in Dresden and other areas when the United States and England started bombing Nazi Germany. They thought, well, we're just going to do this and the people are going to give up. But actually, the areas that were being bombed became more committed to the cause, which is the exact opposite of what they wanted. So, when people feel like their life has a purpose, the collective we, as in when I walk out on the street and I see my fellow neighbors, now currently in 2020, the United States, I walk around and I look at people and like, I don't feel that sense of community that I would when, for instance, someone is wearing like an Eagles jersey, I like yell out, go birds. I don't like go out and see people and I'm not like, go USA and they're all like yeah and like (laughs) that would be kind of weird and if you saw someone that was like that you'd probably be like oh man classic like patriotic idiot that probably likes guns (laughs) right and like that's because we in the United States are all so different and then I think to myself like so looking at the again that what H.A. Line says when people are actively engaged in a cause their lives have more purpose with a resulting improvement on mental health what do what are we currently working towards as the United States collectively? Like, do we have a goal at all? Do we as Americans collectively have a common goal that we can work towards where we can all be a part of something and are more likely to think of ourselves as a we? So I individually have a goal. And when you have a purpose, like Dr. Jordan Peterson talks about this, if you're familiar with him, if you think he's a neo-Nazi, you, I don't know, um, I would disagree. But he, he is saying like, the best thing you can do is take on responsibility and find purpose in your life. And like that improves your mental health. So when you have a goal and you're, when you're working towards something and being responsible, your happiness increases. Individually, do you have a purpose and a goal? And then collectively as a nation, like what are we doing? Where are we working towards anything? It seems that is not the case. And that I think is one of the reasons why we're just constantly bickering and like looking inwards. It's like if we were all struggling, right? And like we're struggling to stay alive and like we have something, like we have to build this house or like we got to get out of the cold, like we have to build a shelter. And every single day when you wake up, like, okay, I got to go collect branches. I got to go build this stuff. Right. Okay. Johnny, you're going to go get this. Samantha, you're going to go get that. Right. Like we are all working together to build the shelter to get out of the cold or like to stay alive every single day you're doing that. And then when the shelter is built and then we're just sitting in the shelter and then we have like a fire and like we have food and life is more comfortable. We just get bored and we're just sitting around and we start like getting annoyed at how the other person chews with their mouth open. I feel like that's the United States. We're just nitpicking every little tiny little thing. And not everything's tiny. I'm, I acknowledge that there's a lot of deep issues going on in the United States. But as I said in the Sonder podcast, it seems that we are more interested in finding our differences than uniting for our solutions. Or, our, sorry, our similarities. So if we were to have a collective goal... And doesn't even necessarily even have to be suffering, but if we were to have a collective goal, I could walk out in the street and say like, okay, we are a part of something, but we don't. So when I become president, based on you giving me those that money that I was talking about, so upwards of, uh, I mean, I need at least 5.6 million for next year's 30 second advertisement for the Super Bowl, which <laughs> even if I were to do that, it would probably like that's the time for bathroom bake and 
break and people will be like, who's this idiot? And like, just start making fun of my teeth or <laughs> like something, you know, like they're not going to listen to it at all. But I'm going to run for president. I'm going to get your vote. I'm just checking off the list of things that I'm assuming are going to be true. I'm going to get your money. And then when I become president, I'm going to start what I'm calling the green war. And the green war is going to be fairly simple. We as the United States, and this is assuming that OPEC isn't even putting an embargo on us, but we are going to work to be to detox ourselves from oil. And we are going to be the best. And we're declaring a green war against all other countries that we are going to be the most green nation on this planet. We are going to become totally reliant first, even though the Scandinavian countries are getting there. Like, that should upset you. That should get on your nerves. We are going to be the best at going green. The market's not there for it. The market's not there for going to the moon. Sometimes you just got to make it happen. And, like, think about the potential growth that, like, we could experience. Again, 1903 to 1969... We flew and then we got to the moon. I'm talking about like, look at all of the streets in the United States, all the parking lots, like blacktop pavement. What is it doing? It's just absorbing sunlight, gets warm, and then at nighttime it cools off and then it gets warm again. Why? Like, let's do something with that energy. Let's build roads that can harness that energy. Oh, the market's not there for it. Okay. Well, why was the mar- like why did we get to the moon? Because we wanted to and we were competing and we had a common purpose. It was a space race. We got to the moon because we wanted to be another country and we collectively were feeling competitive and we had a common goal. Just as humans can do if we have a common goal. So our common goal is and it's not like We're going to hope the market gets better. We're going to go green. Like, no, we are going to be number one in going green. That's going to create jobs, engineering jobs. We're going to hire, ideally, American engineers in going green. So I'm going to tell you, make these streets solar panels. Like, that's impossible. Okay, well, tell someone in 1903 that flew for the first time, like, okay, that's nice, but like, get to the moon. They're like, well, that's impossible. Like, okay. Sure, but in your lifetime, it's going to happen. Like, if you tell a five-year-old that f- in 1903 that flew, I bet there like, might be a five-year-old like, wow, gosh, golly, can you imagine if we got to the moon? And then some adult's like, shut up. That's never going to happen, at least in your lifetime. And then that five-year-old, when they're 71, is watching us get on the moon, supposedly. Again, and I was saying before, like, think about the implications if oil, if we have another embargo from OPEC, all the food that's delivered, everything at like Walmart or wherever else, like everything that you, Amazon, everything that's delivered is running on oil in the end. Let's just shut that out. Electric. And if you say like, well, the market's not there or that's impossible. Look at us getting on the moon. The implications. Ideally, the technology that comes to that is going to, just like the space race, there's going to be technology that bleeds into our everyday lives of living in the United States. It's going to create more jobs because, one, we are we have new fields of engineering, so that's going to be new fields developing. Number two, ideally, if I were Prez Odan, I'm going to try to make as much as possible made in the United States... So that's create, like we're actually making something now. And people are going to want to come to us and buy our stuff. So we're going to be now exporting all of these goods. People are going to look at, this is pretty much like Elon Musk. Like we just need more people like Elon. Elon's doing Tesla. He's like, I'm just making this stuff. So it's like, go ahead and try to make a better electric car than I am. That's what it is. And I hope that if I were to just declare a green war, that 
China and India and the Scandinavian countries are going to accept that and like, oh yeah, you did that. Well, we're going to do this and they're going to go more green. It's going to develop jobs. It's going to create a field of an industry. There's going to be technology that comes from it that's going to improve our daily lives. It's going to give us a actual purpose. And again, when people are actively engaged in a cause, their lives have more purpose with a resulting improvement in mental health. That could even get to the point of like, okay, if you have a five minute drive, just bike there. So now like ideally, like again, I'm being optimistic. I understand like you're going to see more people biking around. And like when you see people biking around and you're biking around and like you, it's like when you're running and you see someone else running, like it's like you're in it together, right? You're going to see people biking around more because we are all collectively trying to reduce our dependency on oil. How many, when you drive on the highway, how many car to and from work, wherever you're driving, how many cars just have one person in it? Like, can we please start carpooling? I I don't know if I could because no one, li- where I work, no one lives near where I work. But, I mean, maybe that's an excuse. Maybe I'll figure something out. Maybe I need to wake up 30 minutes earlier to do that. But I'm waking up 30 minutes earlier because I have, I'm engaged in a cause. I then wonder... That is all great on paper. Couldn't we, can we as the United States actually do it? Can we go through withdrawal and come out in the end without going back to the needle and shooting up oil into our veins? Can we go into withdrawal where maybe the cost of living is going to go up? Maybe some people are going to lose jobs. And like people that work in oil businesses are going to lose their jobs. Can we get past these oil corporations just putting millions of dollars in funding into propaganda that's like trying to convince people that climate change isn't real? And if you think climate change is not real, that's fine. 97% of scientists that that's their expertise think it is. So I'm going to trust them. There's evidence that politicians are getting money from oil corporations to prevent us from going green. Why do you think that's happening? Maybe there's propaganda on the other side. That's fine. But even if climate change isn't real, let's just consider that for a moment. That's fine. I'm just trying to like jumpstart. So I think of like the, um, when you yell clear, you like do the, the charge thing, like three, two, one, clear. You like, we just need, we need a jump start into our system where we're moving again. It seems like we're just chilling in our shelter, just pointing out all the flaws with each other. Let's get a common purpose. Let's make America green again. Oh man, I can't believe how much of a good president I'm going to be. We're going to make America green again. Well, not even green again. We're going to make America green, period. And then that's going to give us a common purpose. That's going to create jobs. And I, I'm going to put this in the title. Please tell me why I'm wrong. Someone tell me why this is not a good idea. And if you tell me the market's not there, I'm going to talk about the space race. And if you tell me that, like, good luck convincing all the Americans to come together, you're probably right. I think that's the one thing that's going to prevent us from happening is we're not going to be able to handle withdrawal because we spend, we're really deep right now in, like, bickering. So we need to collectively, and I'm going to have to work with my propaganda department and, like, my brainwashing team, we're going to have to figure out a way to convince the collective group that we have a common goal. I think that's going to be the biggest issue. But I do think that we can get to the point, like I'm looking out my window right now, I'm looking at a street that could be solar powered. I'm looking at all those roofs, they could be solar powered. We're currently dependent on a system of oil and not just oil of like fossil fuels. If you look at some villages in Africa who are just developing, they're using solar panels and other things. They jumped past this fossil fuel industry and are using cleaner sources of energy from the go, from the get-go. It's going to be a real big problem if developing nations 
as they're developing, which is happening at a higher rate than ever before in the world history where like countries are starting to develop more, which is great. If they are also using fossil fuels, that's not going to be good for our environment. So someone's got to do it. And like, let's be real. Look around in the United States or in the United States, look around the world. Who's going to do it? Like Scandinavia is doing it. Thank you, Scandinavia. India is trying. China is, is trying, I think. The Paris Agreement, but like we are the United States of America. We are potentially the most advanced empire in the history of the world, the most powerful empire in the history of the world, and we're just sitting in our shelter, just constantly bickering with one another. We need something to do. Like, why not us over anyone else? So I, as your president of the Stevenson Party, I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a Republican. I'm an American. I'm going to start a green war. I'm going to call out all other countries and say, I bet you that my people, we collectively can do better than your people in going green. Bet. Watch me. And I'm just going to, we're going to go for it. If you want to like, carbon tax, whatever else is going to help the market push towards going green, fine. But I look at how dependent we are on oil, what it's doing to our planet. And I look at the current status of the United States and how we don't really have a common goal. We're not actively engaged in a cause. And I'm looking like what it's doing to us. It seems like the mental health United States is not doing great. What if we were to wake up every day and collectively, when you walk outside, people are riding their bikes rather than driving. People are carpooling. People are buying electric cars. People are making sacrifices because we are all part of a collective goal. That seems to be a situation I would like to be living in. And it's possible with my green war. So what's going to have to happen? You're going to have to give me your money. I'm going to start a GoFundMe. You're going to have to tell people about this podcast because I'm probably going to need more than five votes for the five people that are listening. So if I could get more than five votes and if I could get more than $5 million, that's step one in starting my green war. Step two would be designing really cool shirts that is going to bring it over the top and that's going to make it dope peace History.